Hello, this is session number nine of my Tolkien class, and it was a memorable one. For one thing, it was our first day talking about the Silmarillion, and that's always a fun time. One of the most common questions I've received since I started this podcast is, are you going to do a lecture series on the Silmarillion anytime soon? I totally understand the question. The Silmarillion is tough, and most people struggle with it the first time through. I do plan someday to do a full lecture series on the book, but that'll be a little ways down the road. In the meantime, I hope that those of you who have been looking for more Silmarillion guidance will give the book another crack and follow along with my class as we go through the book. Another thing I should explain before we begin. The atmosphere in this particular class session was rather more light-hearted and whimsical than it is usually. This is due primarily to the fact that the college had actually cancelled our afternoon classes in anticipation of the enormous blizzard that our region got blasted by this past weekend. In their zeal, however, the college rather overshot the mark and cancelled classes well before the first flake of snow had even begun to fall. My students and I, therefore, staged a nonviolent protest by clandestinely meeting for our class anyway. This is why I comment on the fact that the snow has begun a little more than halfway into the class. Anyway, let's get down to business and begin our journey through the Silmarillion. We are beginning the Silmarillion today. Uh, the appetizer courses are over. The main course begins. Um, <laughs> the Silmarillion was, has a, 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 a peculiar kind of history and a, a unique place in the, uh, the body of Tolkien's works. Uh, on the one hand, it was the latest... Well, I mean, I was about to say the latest of his works published, though that's not true, as two have been published in the last five years. But uh, of his great, I mean, it was published posthumously, 1977. He died in 73. It was published in 1977. Um, he had always wanted to get it published and had tried for many years to get it published, and it kept getting denied as his, uh, uh, his, his publisher in England, um, who you know, was, had been a, a friend and supporter of him for decades, um, kept gently and firmly saying, really, there aren't that many people who would want to read this. Uh, and, and so he never quite gave up hope, but never succeeded in his lifetime in getting it published. Um, though, although this was published after his life and you know, decades after The Lord of the Rings, it predates almost everything else that he wrote. Uh, some of the sections from the Silmarillion are some of the very earliest stories that he wrote uh, and began thinking about when he was in his teens. Um, so, uh, in fact, one of them, the Fall of Gondolin, uh, it, in part he sketched uh, you know, the famous stories of him working on that in the trenches in World War I. So um, very, very early stuff, a lot of this. Um, and he revised it and rethought it and worked it through throughout his life. And then they were still unfinished uh, and really not fully ready for publication at the time where he died. Uh, and his son, Christopher Tolkien, sort of gathered things together, selected uh, you know, among all of the different versions and everything, and produced what came to be the published text of the Silmarillion. Um, now, I recognize that the Silmarillion is hard. If you're having a hard time with it, it's not just you. Um, everybody, pretty much, has a hard time with the Silmarillion. In fact, it is, um, it is a very frequent, nearly indeed universal phenomenon among people who, especially people who read Tolkien uh, when they're young and really kind of, you know, read The Hobbit and or The Lord of the Rings uh, at a fairly early age and love Tolkien and find out, hey, there's this other book by Tolkien and pick it up and go, whoa. I mean, I remember this happened to me. I first tried to read The Silmarillion when I was 10 or 11 and I don't think I got past like the first five pages. I, I mean, I, I don't even remember exactly where I stopped, but I didn't get very far into it. Um, 
And it really wasn't until my second or th- even possibly third attempt through it uh, that, I, and that was, I think, during college, I think, that I really finally actually read the whole, you know, succeeded in reading the whole thing through cover to cover. It's a very different kind of thing. Um, some of the things that make it different are its style, of course. The style is very different and very self-consciously different uh, from The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. We will see... Stylistically, we will be going through several extremes. We will, we're starting with the Silmarillion, which is the highest, the self-consciously highest, loftiest, and most archaic style. We will then shift to The Hobbit, which he wrote for and aimed at children. And he uses, uh, not entirely simplistic, but certainly much more simplistic and at times even silly language and style in that story. And then The Lord of the Rings, which is sort of in the middle and has moments where it shifts up into almost Silmarillion-esque diction, um, but other times when it, when it sort of swoops back down uh, towards the Hobbit register. The Silmarillion is pretty consistent. These are legends, and they're, they are to be read as ancient legends. One of the reasons that he used this kind of an archaic style is that one of the things he's doing is trying to give the impression of this is a book with a history. We are not coming in and getting some kind of a, 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 a sort of a fictitious first-person account of what happened at creation. What we are hearing here um, is... The fiction of the fiction, the fictional framework of this story is that these are the ancient legends of the elves that they have gathered and that they have retold and that have come down to us from them. Um, For those of you who have read The Lord of the Rings before, you may remember at the very end of The Lord of the Rings when uh, Bilbo is, when Frodo meets Bilbo, when they're on their way uh, to the Grey Havens, when he meets him again in Rivendell uh, on the way home from, from, from Minas Tirith, Bilbo gives him uh, a few volumes of books that he's written called Tales from the Elvish um, that he has collected from talking to people in Rivendell and from the books that he read while at Rivendell. And he's translated all of these Elvish legends uh, and, and, and compiled them. Um, that's the Silmarillion. That's what it is. That's sort of the fictional frame of this book. So it's supposed to sound like an ancient legend. When we read it, it is supposed to be alien and foreign to us, just as when we pick up an actual historical ancient chronicle, we pick up an ancient chronicle of the Greeks, or we pick up an ancient Roman text. It sounds different. It sounds strange. It doesn't read like you know, books that we read in our language, in our diction, in our style. And that is the experience that Tolkien wanted us to have when we picked up the Silmarillion. And I think he successfully achieved that, uh, that kind of distance and that kind of alienness of the text from us. Of course, one of the other problems which uh, Tolkien might possibly have anticipated but had less sympathy for uh, is the, uh, the difficulty that so many modern readers have with all the names uh, in this book, because you will find not only that there are lots and lots and lots of characters with, uh, you know, and therefore lots of names to remember, but of course one of the characteristics of the Silmarillion are the multiple different names that people will get. And indeed, as we go through stories, at particular points in the story, a character will receive a new name to sort of commemorate this thing that has happened in the story. And that is just a reflection of who Tolkien was and what he loved. I mean, he was a philologist. He loved words. He loved names. Names are to him enormously important, and he will usually express the significance of a thing or the significance of a moment by the naming of something. Um, 
And it's not just people that get their names changed. I mean, very often, one of the things that we'll see happen in stories in the Silmarillion, uh, some event will occur of some importance. And the people, at, at times, this will lead to some of the principals in that event receiving a new name. Sometimes people will just look around and say, and from now on, this place shall be called this. Uh, you know, the, 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 the location where the event occurred will be given a name to commemorate uh, the, the event, even if it might, might not even seem like a really important event at the time. I'm thinking, for instance, one example. Uh, uh, one of the examples of this, which can come off as almost comical in the story of Turin Turambar, uh, where uh, uh, Nina will shiver at one point. Like, they're taking her home, and she, like, ha- shivers when they're crossing a stream, and from then on, that place is called, like, the Shivering Stream. So, I mean, it's... <laughs> And it's just like, what, why did that happen? Why do we need to know that? But the moral of the story is you should pay attention to things like that because, I mean, that's... Remember names and naming and what we talked about with naming in Mythopoeia, right? Naming is, you know, in, in, in Tolkien's mind, one of the essential actions of a sub-creator. Um, the, the essential actions of humans, back to Adam, right? That's what people do, as he says. All language is naming, I remember those, that, that first stanza in Mythopoeia, right, where he says trees are not trees until we name them trees, right? All of the words that we use, all of language is us attaching names to things. So there are lots of names. Uh, do your best. Try not to get overwhelmed. Uh, you needn't try to memorize them all, um, but, but, but do your best with them. Yeah, Jordan? Um, I've noticed, at least in my experience, that... Once you get through a section of Silmarillion successfully once, it becomes infinitely easier the next time. Yeah. This is my second time successfully reading the Iron Lindley. And I remember, I was reading it, I'm like, where did the difficulty go? There were like six million times more names and weird words in it than the last time, weren't there? <laughs> yeah, it really, it's really, that's really true. The best thing you can do... Um, Better than trying to make lists and flowcharts and things, the best thing you can do is just reread it. Um, I have tried for this reason to keep the page n- numbers of m- the assignments in the Silmarillion comparatively low. They're about half as half as many pages per assignment as there will be in the Lord of the Rings. Um, and one of my goals there is to facilitate that uh, that approach. If you do, um, I think the the whole thing will make a lot more sense to you if you try to. Uh, get into the discipline of doing the class reading twice uh, before class. I know that kind of sounds like a lot to ask. It is merely a suggestion, but I think you'll find that that does help a lot. Um, anyway, on to the Ainulindale, which uh, means uh, the, the, the subtitle is just a translation, the music of the Ainur. Um, first of all, the Ainur themselves... One important overarching thing that I want you to keep in mind, when you're reading Tolkien's mythology, don't try to pigeonhole things or identify them. It is very tempting, for instance, when you start the Anilindoloi to ask, okay, what are the Ainur? Are they gods like the Greek gods? Are they angels? What are they? There's no answer to that question. They are the Ainur. See, when you ask that question, very sensible though it seems, when you ask that question, what you're doing is leaving Tolkien's secondary world that he's trying to, he's barely even entered it yet, and you're trying to leave it, right? And connected to something outside, to other stories. 
Now, I'm not saying that that's an entirely fruitless exercise. To do a careful reading of you know, the description of the Ainur with the description of, of you know, the way that gods work in other pantheons or the way that angels work in the Christian tradition, those are interesting questions. And I think we can learn some interesting things about both of them if we're really doing a careful comparison and contrast and looking at how they work. But we can't use that approach as a way to answer the question, who are the Ainur? The only answer to that question is from within the story itself. They are the Ainur. They, are, they have things in common with gods and with angels. We are told that they are often called gods. In his earlier uh, manuscripts, uh, his, his earlier versions of this story, he often does refer to them as gods. Uh, the Ainur and the, and the elves are very frequently called gods and fairies, respectively, uh, in the earlier drafts of his writings. Um, so, I mean, that's certainly kind of how he was conceptualizing them. This is still, however, unquestionably a monotheistic world, right? We have Eru, Iluvatar, who is a, clearly a monotheistic transcendent deity. And you have the Ainur who are the powers. Uh, tell me what we know about them. Not the story, not the details of what happens, just about the Ainur. Tell me what we know about them. Aaron? They sing, like, all the time. Good. Uh, they, they, and, and we could, from that, go one step further and say they are, they are artists, right? They sing. And singing is clearly an expression of their being, an expression of the mind of Iluvatar, of the part of the mind of, of Iluvatar from whence they come. Right, Max? There's a hierarchy among them, although it doesn't specify how formal the hierarchy is. Good, and I would emphasize both of those things. Uh, there is certainly... There are differences of stature among them. Some are greater and some are lesser in power and in being. Um, but yes, there is not a really um, rigid hierarchy that we see. The, we get a little bit of that, right? You have the, you know, in general, the, the, Ainur, the, you know, the Ainur is the name for all of them. You've got the Valar and the Maiar, right? Uh, Maiar are just like Valar, except they're lesser, or they're just lesser in stature. So in this way, they're like the, the two classes of of the Ainur, pretty loosely um, understood. And I would emphasize loosely understood. Some of the Maya that we meet are going to be very, very powerful and might in some ways be more powerful uh, than the Valar. Aonwe, for instance, the herald of Manwe, we're told is the mightiest in arms of any in Arda. So, you know, there are lots of things that he can't do, but challenge him to a sword fight and you'll lose. Even, even the greatest of the Valar are going to lose to him in a sword fight because that's what he does. That's what, it's one of, one of his things. Um, but, but still, there, there is definitely, definitely a difference, e- even among the Valar, right? We're told that there are some who are the great ones, right? Um, and some of the Valar who are lesser Valar. But, but we can't get into a detailed ranking system, you know, who exactly is greater than, like, you know, a, like... You know, Varda versus Olmo, who's really greater of the two of them? That, that's not really a very useful question because it's certainly not articulated in that kind of detail. Other things? What else do we know about the Ainur? Basic, basic things about their existence, their nature. Yeah. Nelfor thought that he should be above all of them. Yes. Uh, and he... Oh, we'll come back to Melkor. We'll come back to Melkor and his story. Jordan? Um... They were described as being made from a specific code of the mind of Iluvatar. Each of them represents an aspect of him in, that, in, in some sense. Yeah, they, each one of them, they're different from each other. They all derive from Iluvatar, but they don't, uh, 
from a different part of his mind is the... Yeah, I'm about 80% comfortable with that. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, their knowledge is limited, but it's not just like I have only been given so much information, somebody else has given more information than me in a purely quantitative sense. They understand different things. I mean, think about the relationship of, uh, of Olmo to the waters and of Aule uh, to the earth, and not just in an elemental sense, right, but what they know about, what they're good at. Aule is the great maker, the great craftsman. Ulmo is the great singer. He is the great, he, he knows more of music than any other of the Valar. Um, all of these things are, you know, parts of the one unified whole that is Iluvatar. They are made in his image, but that doesn't mean they're, they're identical. They are all distinct. Yeah. They, they can't deviate or else the great music is not good. Yeah. Um, Time for... <laughs> no, no, not exactly. We'll come back to the music in a second. I will come back to the music in a second. You guys are raring to talk about the plot in the fall of Melkor, and that's, uh, I understand that. Do they have bodies? What's their relationship to bodies? Yeah, Brittany? Um, they wear bodies like we wear clothes. They wear bodies like we wear clothes. They don't have physical being. They can take on physical being if they want to, but they don't have physical being. Um, they are essentially spiritual creatures in this way, but that's not a negative thing. It's not like they lack bodies. Um, they can have them if they want. They're just not, they're just not bound to them. Um, they transcend the physical world. They helped make the physical world. Um, yeah, Jordan? So, to better understand what I was trying to say earlier, rather than they each have a certain perspective, they each have a certain specialty, like, rather than they each have a section of the world they understand, they each have a section of the world they peek at and have more understanding of? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I would go with that. I would go with that. I mean, that is, and I would even, you know, a word that he uses a lot that I think is a very important one here would be love. That is, each one of them shares the love, you know, the love that Iluvatar has for, like, you know, almost love for water and his love for music um, reflects more perfectly, more fully than others, the love of Iluvatar for those things. Um, all of them do to some extent, especially the music, for instance, right? Um, but, but the degrees differ. Right, yeah. um, one thing I was unsure about, do, do, we, do we either have physical form? I thought they, I don't think they didn't have physical form until they became the Valor form. <laughs> They don't because, like, nothing. There, there right. doesn't seem to be a physical world before the creation, so it, like, doesn't occur to anybody to take on physical form. When the Valar come down, they are bound to the world when they enter it. That, that doesn't mean they, you know, they have bodies and are bound to a physical form when they come into it, but they, uh, they basically, you know, bind themselves to, to Arda because, you know, they, they invest themselves in it. Um, and when they're interacting with the physical world, they do, at times... I was about to say often. I don't know that we have any information about that, exactly how often, you know, what percentage of the time any given Vala is in physical form. But um, clearly they take on physical form in order to interact with it. Because we're told without their physical form, they're entirely invisible uh, and imperceptible to, 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 to elves or to, to men. So, um, so clearly 
it is their way of, of interacting. And in this way, it's one thing that I would emphasize about that. It's an act of humility on their part. They are, we don't use the word condescend in a positive way anymore, um, but they are condescending in a positive way, just like the fairy king and queen and Smith of Wooten Major condescend in a positive way. Um, not an insulting or belittling way, but they are, they are genuinely higher, genuinely great, and they, through humility and patience, come down and condescend to help. And the Valar are like that, right? They, even, like the restriction of themselves to physical form is itself an act of humility on their part, uh, an act of accommodation to the world that they, that they love and have entered and have taken responsibility for. Yeah, Christina? Um, they know a lot about what's to come, but they don't know everything. Yes. And this is very important to remember. Their powers are limited and their knowledge is limited. They, don't know, they know much, but not everything of what is to come. Um, this is... For most of the story, they, they are the powers of Arda. Iluvatar delegates the world to them. They are going to be in charge. But, but their scope is limited. And although they, will, they are sort of the end of the line you know, in, in authority and in leadership in the world, most of the time and very rarely will we see anyone looking or going past them, yet we are reminded they are not omnipotent at all. They're neither omnipotent nor omniscient. Uh, in fact, you know, we will see several conspicuous examples of them not being both of those things. How does creation happen? We can now get into the story. How does creation occur? Yeah, Aaron? Um, it starts off with Illumitar, am I saying that right? Yeah. Um, By the way, the, the, the accents that are put on the names... Those are essentially pronunciation helps. Um, Tolkien puts the umla, the, the umla, the, the, the two dots over terminal e's. That's to tell you you're supposed to pronounce this. Okay, it's like don't. This is not a silent e, is what Tolkien is telling you when there when there are the two dots above, above the e. Similarly, he will sometimes put that when there's like a two vowel combination, um, like an ea, and he wants you to know this is two syllables. This is not. This is not just just one vowel sound. Um, and the little accent is designed to tell you this is where the stress in this name is supposed to go. So emphasize this syllable. So just they're supposed to. They 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 might kind of at first make it look more confusing, but the marks are there to help you. Anyway, yes, go ahead. He Illuvatar kind of clues them in that there's something he wants to do, and it says that he declares to them a mighty theme. Yes. And sends them off to sing and says, "Go forth and do." Good, good. Does this sound familiar at all? What should we be thinking about when, uh, when the, 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 the choir of the Ainu are, are, are singing? The great music, which, is, which becomes the history of the world. Something we've read already? In that it's art in the connection between art and reality and the question of the and like the chicken and egg question there yeah creation itself 
In Tolkien's creation myth, creation itself is done by God through instruments, through his creatures. The passage I was especially thinking of, though, you're right, Brittany, that is a really good connection to make. The passage I was thinking of was the, the refracted light image from Mythopoeia. Iluvatar says, let me explain this theme. I want you to play this theme. But then they, each one of them, through, by using the, the, the gifts of music that each one of them has, they do their thing. They are improving. There's a, Iluvatar doesn't give them sheet music. He is more than just a conductor of an orchestra that is playing off of, off of music. They are each one of them making their own music on the theme that he's given them. But the music is the music that he wanted made. And he sits back and hearkens to it and is glad. He's not even conducting. You'll notice. He does a little bit of conducting later on, right? He lifts his hand. But still, and then he lifts the other hand. No, wait, I did it backwards, (laughs) right? And then he lifts both hands and it's over. But most of the time, he's not even conducting. But still, the music is still his music. It's their music, individually, but it's his music, just as the the white light that is shined through the crystals is God's light, and the refracted light from each crystal is God's light, light shown through that individual artist. Creation itself is like subcreation here. Iluvatar will almost never do anything completely independently. There are a few examples, but very few. What's the one big example that we learn of in the Ainuindale? What's the thing that God does totally independently without the action of any of the, of the Ainur, Brittany? Yes, the creation of the children, the design of the children of Iluvatar. Elves and men come entirely from the mind of Iluvatar and not from the Ainur. And to them, to the Ainur, that is, the children seem, are, are strange and kind of exciting for that way because they're unique among all of the rest of creation. The rest of creation, they were, they did themselves. So now again, who did it? Are, are we saying that God didn't create the world? No, God does create the world. The Ainur are his instruments in the creating of the world. And of course, we can think here instruments in two senses, right? Both his tools uh, and his musical instruments. Yeah, Will? But it's not how he intended to create it originally, right? Because every time they sing, Melkor strikes up with his own thing that is not exactly contrary, but it doesn't fall exactly in line with Lubitar's plan. And he has to to do it, what, three times? Uh, Three different themes. And in the last theme, it's all blended together, including Melkor's part. Hey, Freeman. It's exactly what he wanted to happen. The rebellion of Melkor is against his will, but the music that's created is the music that he wanted created. Um, what does he tell Melkor? If you try, he says, none can change the music in my despite. What does that mean? Okay. I, I want to venture a modern English translation, John? Well, basically, if he tries to change it, he intended it. Yes. It's like saying, well, if you uh, move your arm, it's silly because I thought it. You can't. You might try to say, hey, okay, 
Iluvatar wants me to do this music, but you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm doing something totally different. I'm going to go in a completely unexpected direction and do something that is a, that, and I'm going to accomplish something that was totally outside of Iluvatar's will. This is indeed what Melkor tries to do. And at the end, Iluvatar says, Sorry. Yeah, don't try that. You can't do it. You can't. It's not possible to do that. And if you try to do it, what's going to happen to you? Yeah. He's going to use it to you know, further his own design. Yeah. You, will, you will find that you are but my instrument to bring about things more wonderful than you possibly imagined. You will still be my instrument, one way or another. You can't change the music in his despite. It's not, it can't happen. He will use it. So in the end, the music is greater. Each one is adorning the theme with, its, with his own, out of his own thought. His or her own thought, as we see. They are masculine and feminine, right? They don't have bodies, but they are. But that difference of temper they had from their beginning, uh, Tolkien does postulate uh, an essential difference of gender. Uh, in them that transcends physical bodies. The physical bodies is only an outward representation of this difference in temper that he describes. Um, so it is appropriate to speak of the, of the Ainur as masculine and feminine in that way. Um, so what does... Think about now, going back to where Melkor started with his little thing. Well, wait, first of all, I mean, I talked about the conducting before. You see the intimacy of the intimacy and paradox of the will of Iluvatar and the action of the Ainur? He says, here's a theme. Now improv. And when they improv, it is this immense harmony together. But they're each one doing their own thing. He lifts his hand and a new theme arises. This new theme is a theme of Iluvatar's composition, right? I mean, he lifted his hand and it happened. But it's still the Ainur singing it those that are remaining faithful to him anyway. We're told later on, for instance, that Manway was the chief instrument of the second theme. Manway, independently, right, through the exercise of his own free will, became a chief instrument of that second theme when Iluvatar raises his hand. Is Iluvatar making the music happen? Are they making the music happen? Yes, both. Iluvatar is creating here, and they are the instruments of his creation. Again, we find ourselves confronted with that kind of paradox. But as Brittany pointed out, it's the same paradox that underlies all of human art, as we've seen so far. In Niggle, we were confronted by exactly the same paradox on a much less grand scale. But it was still the same paradox. Now, Melkor and what he does. Where exactly does he go wrong? Mac, earlier you talked about conformity, and I was resisting it. Because, of course, it's not conformity. They're improving. It's not exactly like, you know, it's not that unison, you'll notice, there's no unison in Iluvatar's music. It's in Melkor's music that, the, that the, the different singers come together in a clamorous unison. Conformity is the spirit of the rebellion, not of, of Iluvatar's initial theme. Now, but again, what's... What exactly is wrong about what Melkor does? Yeah, Rachel. Oh, it's his own pride. 
Thank you, Rachel. Uh, <laughs> um, it's a ventriloquist act. It's, it's, it's very handy. Um, yeah, yeah. His pride, exp- because what's he trying to do? What motivates him to change the theme? He increased the power and glory of the part assigned to himself. Exactly. <laughs> Rachel is doing wonderfully. Yes, good, good. That's the characteristic of it that makes it different. Um, it's pride versus pride versus humility. Um, he wants to make his own part more glorious. He's thinking not of the whole, not of the harmony, not of the song, but of himself. And he wants his part to be really special. He really wants a solo in this music, and he's not getting one. Tolkien starts off by saying that he began to weave matters of his own imagining into the music. Now, that in itself... Well, that's not a bad thing. Everybody's doing that. That's what they're supposed to do. What's the problem is what those matters are and, wh- and where his own thought is going. What's his desire? What are, we told, he, he, what are we told about the desire that Melkor has? To increase the glory of his own part, but in general. You know, if you said... Melkor, what do you really want out of life? What does he want? Duncan? He wants to bend other people to his own will. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because at first it says he desires to bring into being creatures of his own. That's good. That's a creative impulse. The sub-creative impulse. Excellent. Everybody has that. Aule has that. Olmo has that. All of the Valar have that. Well, especially Aule. Yeah. This is why Aule and Melkor are most alike, uh, and why Melkor really hates Aule, uh, because of how similar they are. Um, but the problem, Duncan, exactly as you say, is where he goes with that. Why does he want to bring things into being? So that he can rule them. Because he wants to be called Lord. He wants to have dominion over these other things. That's bad. That's a problem. And again, it points to the same it, it both points to the same pride and it illustrates the danger of that pride. One could ask, for instance, say, well, what's wrong about wanting to give more glory to the part given to you? I mean, you know, he's the best, right? I mean, he's legitimately the greatest, the strongest. You know, his part probably was pretty awesome. What's wrong with him wanting to amplify it a little bit? Well, the problem is, what are the implications of that, right? You can see the problem in it when you see that what well, that desire to elevate the self is also connected directly as, as an expression of the desire to lower others and to rule over others. And it really helps to show that there's a problem here. Notice, for instance, he wants to bring things into being so that they can serve him. The Aino, what's the, Aino's rea- the, the rest of the Aino's reaction to the children? Really exciting. Why? Because it's, it's new, it's different. It's, like, it's a whole opportunity. Yeah, they perceive that they are something other than they. And they love that. And they say, with the, through the children, we'll, we'll learn something new about Iluvatar that we didn't know before. We're going to see a different part because they come straight from him. So we will, we, we're going to love them because, because they are other. We're going to serve them because they will reflect Iluvatar in this new way. Whereas Melkor's like, 
they will serve me. <laughs> right? And that's different. He covets dominion. Dominion is always a problem. Yeah. I was going to say, I, and I know I use dominion all the time, as do you, but yeah. have we ever actually like defined specifically what dominion means in the sense that Tolkien would use it? That's a good question. Take, for instance, the... Like, compare and contrast the dominion that Melkor wants and the dominion that Iluvatar has. What's the difference? Can we, can we, I mean, this is an important, this is an important issue because we're going to talk about it for the rest of the semester. I mean, this desire to rule over others, the desire to rule over others is almost, is, I'm trying to think if I can think of any, if I, if I need to qualify that or if I can just say it's always bad in Tolkien. <coughs> Are there any positive examples? Well, there's Where's a difference between ruling over people and governing them, yeah. leading them. Yeah. I think that's... Being a leader is okay. Even want, under some circumstances, wanting to be king is okay. But if you want to like, boss over other people, that's always bad. Like, it's always bad. But anyway, so, but, but I mean, hey, Iluvatar, he's the big boss of everybody, right? I mean, everybody has to submit to Iluvatar. So why is he not, like, worse than Melkor? Wiz? I wouldn't say like, he's desiring to dominate them. He's wanting them to express themselves. You know, well, yes, they go according to his plans, but he's not controlling them. Yeah, he doesn't control them. The thing that we see, the remarkable part, I, I, I think one of the most remarkable parts of this as a creation myth is how, it's, and it's, you can't say how uninvolved God is because he is involved, but how much he leaves to others. Um, he doesn't boss people. He doesn't dominate people. He doesn't compel them to anything. He says, oh, by the way, my will is inescapable, so don't try to leave it. But he doesn't say, I will control you. He lets them do their thing, both, both the good and the bad. I mean, again, the music of the Ainur is improv. Will? I was going to say, I think the, um, I think in, in Tolkien, the, it seems like the main difference between the two types of dominion is wanting dominion is bad, and having dominion is good. It, it shows, like, like, um, like, uh, like Denethor, for instance, uh, wanted dominion, and he fell, and Aragorn had dominion by writing his bloodline, so that was good. And, like, uh, Iluvatar has dominion because he's, he's God, Melkor wanted dominion. Yeah, but see, even one could conceivably do a counter-argument based on Melkor. That is, one could say, uh, like, take uh, back to Smith of Wooten Major, the fairy king, especially the fairy queen, and the, the description that we get of the fairy queen there. Because of her being, she is really powerful. She, um, she doesn't have to assert authority, because there's no question of it. I mean, her authority is, is unquestionable, to the mortal smith as he is standing before her. But one could say, hey, Melkor, he's the greatest of the Ainur. I mean, the children of Iluvatar, they are, they're like little bugs compared to him in stature. So perhaps his dominion over them is just a natural expression of this difference in their being. Marta? Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with everything. But also, I, um, I think the selfish element is essential to the whole thing. Elizabeth and Melkor. Elizabeth does all these things, 
just because they're pleasing and they're good. And I think if you ask God why, he would say, why not? It's good. I like it. And that's, that's enough. Melkor does it because he's, well, I, I want it and I need it. So yeah. there's that. Yeah. There's that dynamic. Yeah, it's regard of self. Pride versus humility. I, I agree. I think that's really at the heart of things. Kelly? Um, was it back in On Fairy Stories when Tolkien was talking about how in the presence of these Iluvatar-like god figure that the, the presence of the greater does not diminish yeah, the, the lesser of these creations? And I think Malkor is really, really wants to subjugate uh, the rest of creation against the will of Iluvatar. Right. I mean, the, the contrast to Melkor there is Manwe. Manwe is put in the position of authority over the whole world. He is the greatest, second greatest, actually, second greatest to Melkor, to what Melkor was. Though you'll notice they use, uh, Tolkien speaks in the past tense of that. Melkor decreases in greatness as time goes on. He lessens himself through his choices and through his actions. Um, Manwe has authority. He's the king of the world. But he is not self-regarding in that. If this expression can be used, God himself is humble, more humble, infinitely humble in his actions, in the sense of being not self-regarding, not standing on his own dignity, and, and Tolkien really emphasizes that. One uh, passage, I, I, by the way, I've referred several times to in the manuscripts. This does not, by the way, reflect like obscure archival research that, that nobody else can do. The, uh, the, the Tolkien's earlier versions of these stories are readily accessible to all of you, um, in the the 12-volume series that Christopher Tolkien has released called The History of Middle-Earth, which goes through the evolution of these stories uh, over the course of Tolkien's life. Um, these are, I, we have a, a, each and every volume in the library, and they will be on reserve, so you can check them out yourselves. Um, one thing which is relevant to this, though, in, 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 his, in his early drafts, uh, there's a line which he, which he removed from the later drafts of this story, which was that, when they were talking about what was going to happen, when he's spelling out the consequences of what's going to occur and looking forward to the children coming and you know that there are going to be consequences in the history of the world to Melkor's rebellion and the discord of Melkor and, that, and, and the children, when they come, goodness knows they're not always going to make good choices and they're going to sometimes prove to be little, little mini Melkors or micro Melkors at various <laughs> points and in various ways. But they... But, but, and and, and, and uh, in the... In the earlier draft, the Ainur sit back and, and, and he puts in a sentence that they're amazed at the patience of Iluvatar. Why he lets this happen? Why he doesn't just stop it? Like, why didn't he just shut Melkor up at the beginning? He could have. I mean, he could have just, you know, turned off the volume on his little, you know, mixer board uh, for the music <laughs> of the Ainur. Shut up, Melkor, and let's let the, let the thing continue. But he doesn't do that. In fact, what does he do? What are his themes about? It's not just about fighting it, right? He doesn't just amp up the volume of the rest of the Ainur to try to drown him out. Again, raising volume and trying to drown out, that's what Melkor's doing, not what Iluvatar's doing. What does Iluvatar do, Mac? Iluvatar uh, weaves the music of Melkor into his music so that all of Melkor's most triumphant notes sound like they're naturally part of what Iluvatar is doing. Yeah, and in fact, they come to, to, uh, to act as some of its chief beauties. Right. And this, that's it. it illustrates what he immediately goes on to explain. Look, if you try to deviate, I'm telling you it's not going to work out. You are going to end up participating only in greater beauty. 
Is it Ten? cutting off too much to bring up the free will thing? Go for it. It has started to snow. Oh, my goodness. I see several flakes. Deep breaths, everybody. Deep breaths. I know. It's, we've got five minutes. We're not going to make it. But sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. I know it's always just, you know, an issue with Malfour. Like, in theory, Malfour is doing it of his own free will because he's imagining these things and he's coming up with them on his own. But when Olubica makes a statement like, but you can't actually go against my theme because, you know, you're, you're kind of presuming that it's because he's omniscient and he predicted yeah. that this was going to happen and therefore he designed the theme so that when Malfour inevitably did this thing, but of course then you've got that paradox like, that Iluvatar intends for him to, you know, fall, and yeah. therefore, you know, what does that say if, if Iluvatar wanted Melkor to, Melkor to fall? Here we get back to paradox immediately. And as one always does when one is discussing infinity. Uh, you know, yeah, Tolkien doesn't use that kind of time language um, about them. I mean, no one ever asked the question, did Iluvatar know in advance that Melkor was going to fall, for instance. Um, though it seems perfectly clear that Iluvatar is not surprised yeah. about any of these things, or that any of these things are really going on behind his back. Um, but that's, that's the paradox. That's always the case. Um, is it fair to say, or to ask if he's temporally omniscient? The statements about the Ainu are only knowing a limited part of the future because of their limited participation in this, each of them in the song certainly suggests that the entirety of the future is noble. But remember, time itself is a product of the song. Um, history, not just the physical world, but the whole history of the world is being created in the song. Um, so whenever one asks time questions about God, uh, I mean, I, Tolkien's thought about this appears to be quite traditional. And by quite traditional, I mean St. Augustine, Boethius, the traditional medieval Catholic understandings of the nature of God and the nature of free will and predestination. Um, and that is that both are true. Yes, of course, God knows everything before it happens. Yes, of course, God is the ultimate cause of everything. That He tells Melkor that, right? You can't do or say anything that doesn't have its uttermost source in me. I am the uttermost source of everything. But one thing that will clearly be emphasized again and again is that people really have free will. People really can choose, and there really are consequences to those choices. And when I say people, of course, you'll remember, especially humans. Men, in particular, are given an unusual degree of freedom. They're even more free. Their wills are even more free than elves are. Um, and sometimes they do things that really puzzle the elves and the Valar, too. But we'll get into that later on. Marta? Okay, so... Not exactly sure, but he said that um, Alu Vatar slash God says that all things have their source in time. 
that in Melkor obviously comes from it. So I guess is it a fair assumption to say that all the bad things of the world also find their source in God? It's Yes and no. Yes and no. Um, again, this uh, uh, when we were talking about free will, we were right, right back to Boethius here. We're right back to St. Augustine. There is no such thing as an evil thing. Evil does not have being. Evil is a negation. Melkor performs an evil act. How? Because he has being and strength and capability. Those are good things that have their source in Iluvatar. His will chooses to apply them for evil purposes. But even those purposes are not themselves wholly evil. As we've said, like, his impulse to say, I want to create new things, I want, I want, to, I want to design my own stuff, that's a good impulse. That's, just, that's a creative impulse that all of them have. In fact, one of the things that's best about them. But he is perverting it for a twisted end. God didn't create anything bad. Right? There's no, no evil thing has positive existence. Just as darkness doesn't exist. doesn't mean that it's never dark. It just means that darkness is it's the absence of a positive thing. Right? Light exists. Darkness doesn't exist. Darkness is just a place where light is not. Good exists. Has being, capital B. Notice the number of times that the word B with a capital B is used uh, in this section. All being is good because all being comes from Iluvatar. But that doesn't mean that there is no evil. It is a deficiency, not a positive thing. Um, so does God will the evil that Melkor does? No. But Melkor couldn't will it and couldn't perform it if he did not have the good things that Luvatar gave him. And so, and again, here we see again the humility of Luvatar. I'm going to give you things like, you know, existence, for instance, and then I'm going to let you do your thing. And you might choose to, to do something good with it, or you might choose to do something bad. In other words, you might choose to reflect the same humility that I showed, or not. If not, evil will come. And so he is, it, but it still has its source in Iluvatar's choice, but he didn't will it. And evil will come, but it's still going to be incorporated. And it's the most triumphant notes of evil are still going to be woven in to the theme of Iluvatar and end up being uh, tributary to its glory, uh, part of its greatest beauties. Hey, yeah, I don't have to stop, actually, do I? I, I will indulge myself so far as to say two things uh, before, before I let you go. It does seem unfair to keep you infinitely. Uh, and, and impose upon your generosity in coming today uh, anyway and joining the, the rebellion. Um, first is, the first thing that I would say is notice, um, and I already commented on it a little bit, uh, Tara brought it up, about, the, about, about history uh, and the relationship of history to the song. Uh, remember, we get basically three times through world history. The song itself, the music with its discord and its final resolution in that last great chord, not only brings about the creation of the physical world, but it tells the entire scope of history. Okay? It is both the physical and the temporal world that is created through, that is made by the song. Remember, after that, he brings them and he gives them a vision, capital V. 
in which they see unfolded their music. And this, he says, is the first time anybody saw anything. They, they didn't have sight before. And now they're given sight, and they see the vision. But the vision is taken away only partway through the course of history. So they see some of the song, enough to figure out what's going on, and then the rest of history is taken away, and they don't see the whole vision. And then they descend. Then he says, when the vision stops, they perceive darkness for the first time. And they're like, wow. Now I have sight, and I realize it's really dark around here. I never really noticed that it was dark, because I didn't have eyes before. Right? Uh, and, the, and, and, and Iluvatar says, hey, you guys would like this to really happen, right? Not just for it to be a song that you sang, and not just to be a vision that you saw. You really want it to be, don't you? And they're like, yes, please. And he says, okay, be. <laughs> hey, uh, and so that's the act of creation. The world didn't physically exist prior to that. It was still, in its way, a secondary world. Right? The secondary world of the Ainur in the, in the song. And in one word, God creates everything. Be, and it is. Um, and when they enter into it, when some, not all, but when some of the Ainur, who are then named the Valar, enter into it, remember what they find? They're kind of surprised because you know, they knew the song and they saw the vision and they come in and they're like, oh, the world is all primordial and stuff. <laughs> Right? That is, it's, it's, it's only on point to begin. Like, oh, we're starting back at the beginning again. Now we have to make it happen. And then they act in the world. In other words, what they're doing, all of actual history, the actual physical being of the world and the actual temporal development of history is recapitulation of the music. They know it's going to happen because it's been foresung and it has been partially foreseen in the vision. But it's not actually happened yet and now it's happening. And so they're bringing about what they saw. So, you know, when Melkor comes in and starts messing stuff up, nobody is surprised because that's just what happened before. So remember that the entire scope of history is in this sense an act of deja, an incident of deja vu for the, for the Valar. It's already happened. History is recapitulating the great song. Right? They're still making choices independently. They're not just following a script. But of course, they weren't the first time either. They were all improving. Second thing that I wanted to say. Keep in mind, because that pattern is going to be really important as we go through. The second thing I want to say, um, we haven't talked at all about the Valaquenta, uh, and I, uh, that is the description of the names and who they are. And I, I'm always a little bit torn as to how much time to spend on the Valaquenta, because on the one hand, you know, we, we could go through sort of name by name and review things and make sure everything's clear. Uh, but that takes a lot of time, and it's probably best just for you to go through and, and reread that section you know, a couple times to make sure that you're clear on the names and who they are. One thing that I will say, one general caution that I will give, and this goes back to what I said at the very, very beginning about the Ainur in general, don't try to identify them with anyone outside in any different mythology or any different secondary world. You'll just lose what's happening here. Don't, like, when, you, when you read about Olmo... Don't say, oh, it's Poseidon. No, it isn't. It's Omo. <laughs> I mean, it's not even, it's not even fair. For, I mean, I, in, in my foundations class, I try even to resist uh, saying Neptune is Poseidon. Because they're not. They're different gods. I mean, they're, they're a lot in common, and one is directly incorporated from the other. But the stories about Neptune in the Roman world are not exactly the same as the stories about Poseidon in the Greek world. And certainly the stories about Mars are very different from the stories about Ares. So, so e- even there where you know, there's this manifest connection between the two of them, it's sloppy, at least. 
Huh? Like a book and a movie. Kind of, yeah. It's sloppy at least to, to identify them, you know, or to, to identify one character with, a, with another character in a different story. Try to resist that. Um, it, it, it might, it's interesting. It can be useful to compare and contrast. Um, but don't try to pigeonhole them uh, into various categories. Don't try to latch them onto imaginative you know, hooks or notches that you already have in your brain for other deities or other mythologies. Okay? Try instead to enter into this as a secondary world, to, to embrace these characters as the characters that he presents them uh, and to take them on their own ground. Um, this is especially, it's especially tempting, I know, as I say, because it's so hard to keep them, you know, there's so many names that it, it makes it easier uh, to say, like, okay, if I can just remember, you know, Oma, who is he? Oh, yeah, Poseidon, that's right. Um, I mean, it, it makes it easier. Try to resist. <laughs> Try to resist. Almo is Almo. He isn't anybody else. And that was the end for our special optional rebellion class. As it turns out, classes are canceled again on Monday. There's a little better reason for it this time, however. The campus in the region is still buried under two feet of snow, and most people are still not able to drive anywhere. I will not be able to make it to campus tomorrow, so I will have to record a makeup lecture to substitute. In any case, record-breaking winter weather on the Delmarva Peninsula aside, we shall persevere in our exploration of the Silmarillion. One last quick note. I was able to do some work on my website this past weekend, and I have finally created a page dedicated to this class. You can now go to my website and see the reading schedule for the whole semester. I've created a link to this course page on the newly revised homepage of my site, www.tolkienprofessor.com. As you will see, the reading for the next class is the first seven chapters of the Quintus Silmarillion. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.